Scripture reading is taken from the books of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and it reads, During that long period the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, A word uh, before we pray. Uh, Today we begin the insight uh, study. Uh, It's close, about the Lord being close, the Lord being near. It's out of the book of Exodus. Insight seminar back in January, sort of preparing us and whetting our appetite for this, this great, great book. And uh, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do to resource this. One is you can read uh, a portion of Exodus every day to get your mind kind of lubricated and, and aware of the words that God gave to Moses to relay unto us about this, this great, great part of our salvation history. Uh, another thing that you can do is be a part of a small group. And each uh, Sunday night, small groups all over uh, San Antonio's metropolitan area. We're a church that is spread out over five counties. In terms of our membership, there is a, a group that we can find that is near you. But at the bottom of the outline that you find inside of the bulletin, you will find some questions that pertain to the sermon that are going to be asked tonight in the discussion part of our small groups. Uh, a, a third way that you can be involved too is to sign up for e-devotionals. Uh, it may be that uh, one of the, the ways that uh, helps you press your mind not only into this book, but into prayer and thoughts and meditation, contemplation of the greatness of God's presence and being in the world is to be reminded on a daily basis. And so the staff is writing a devotional every day, Monday through Friday. And if you would like to receive those in your email, you can sign up on the app on the website uh, uh, it seems sort of weird to say you can get the, uh, the, 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 the electronic devotional if you call the church office. But, but you can do that, and we'll make sure that you get a copy of it. Uh, also, a word um, about this study. If you were in Bible class this morning, I know you were blessed by the teaching that you received as an introduction to, to this, this great, great book. But the, uh, the information... Is, is a secondary target. The primary target is all of this information and this intimacy that we're going to gain with this book, with the discussion and, and the, the, the e-devotionals and our own personal reading, our, our time together in class, is, is not just to be informational but relational with God. The primary target in this study is for us to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and, and, and to trust Him and, and to, to obey Him and to walk with Him every day and to find Him beautiful so that we find ourselves breaking out in worship all the time because of how He reveals Himself in this book. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things besides the... Um, besides the, uh, the e-devotional and your own personal reading, I'm going to ask you to pray for your teachers. 
the uh, the book of Exodus is uh, part of it is narrative and part of it is is a sort of liturgical and ecclesi uh, there's an ecclesiology in there with how to worship God but the trajectory of the book is that people are enslaved and as they move closer to God they move away from that enslavement and at the end of the book they're involved in the worship of God and so I want you to pray not only for our teachers and for me but to pray for our church as we, as we move away from any kind of grip or hold that sin has in our lives and to become a people who, who relish the idea of being in worship, of, of being in the presence of God all the time, but sometimes especially on Sunday when we come together and we recognize what God is doing in each of our lives and that wells up into praise to Him to the glory of His name. And that's uh, begin that prayer right now by asking God to bless us in this study. Father, we're, we're grateful for the time that we've already spent this morning in, in the study of this wonderful book. And now we're going to press our minds again into the first two chapters. And what we're asking, Father, is that in, in all of the depth and the height and the width and, and the the profoundness and significance of the love and your character that is revealed to us in this book is that you will whet our appetite to spend time with you. To desire more than anything else to be in your presence. And to recognize that all of our good comes from your nearness. And so as we begin uh, the next three months, we begin this day in the study of Exodus. We ask that you give all of us eyes to see it, ears to hear it in such a way that we will seek you earnestly with all of our life and all the days that you give us. And this we ask in the name of Jesus and all the church said. When it, when it comes to God, uh, Christians like us, it helps us to get our mind around the presence of God, especially as we interact with God on a day-to-day -day basis, to be able to think about Him in, in terms of words. And for a lot of us, those words that describe God are known as uh, the theistic triad, which means that there are three words that help us to think about God. One is that, that God is omniscient, that He's all-knowing, that there's nothing that takes place in all of His creation that God is not aware of, or that takes God by surprise. We say that God is omnipotent, which means that He's all-powerful. That the God, who by a word was able to bring everything in creation to fruition and to bring it into reality, that that is a God whose power has not diminished, His power is not vague, His power has not vanished or waned in any way. We also say that God is omnibenevolent, which means that He's all-loving. And these aren't all the ways that we can describe God, but these are some words that help us to understand God. And these are not words that just help us to understand God. These are words that we count on. We count on these words to be true. These words don't explain everything about God. They don't even explain everything in our world, but we trust them to be true. But because of the presence of suffering, some of it just absolutely inexplicable, most of it gratuitous, all of it horrific, all of it cruel, because of this suffering in the world, 
there are people that struggle with the existence of God. And they say something like this, God is omniscient, He is omnipotent, He is omnibenevolent. Okay, I get that. Pick two. Pick two. God can be all-powerful and all-knowing, but He's not very loving if He knows about our suffering and He's powerful enough to end our suffering, but He doesn't do anything to stop it. Or God could be all-powerful and loving, but maybe He doesn't have a clue as to what most people in this world around the globe are going through. Or God can be all-knowing and all-loving, but when you get right down to the brass tacks, God is too feeble to do anything about it. So the unbeliever says, pick two. Now, we've talked in response to that kind of thinking, and, and uh, I'll refer you to the stuff we've done in the past, and we'll probably talk about this again in the future. But where I want to start this morning is with how we as believers, disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, struggle with this same thing. We do. We struggle with this, not with the sense of disbelief, but we struggle with the belief part of it. What to believe about God. And most of the time we're in a default setting that when things are going okay and things are smooth and everybody's healthy and everybody's safe and there's food on the table and money in the bank to pay the, 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 the accounts at the end of the month, that uh, there's, there's nothing that we're really fearing, there's not anything that's jarring our, our safety and our sense of safety, then God is present. And we say things like, God is good all the time. But then there are those times when everything seems to be going wrong. Relationships on the rocks. You've hurt somebody or they've hurt you profoundly. Or there's a couple of setbacks in the area of health or there's a disappointment at work. Or there's something that's going on that is creating some pain and some anger perhaps in your life. And that's when we get to the default mode that God is absent because everything is going wrongly. Nothing is going smoothly. What the beginning of Exodus teaches us is that there's a third option, and that is this, that sometimes God is hidden. Now, when you need to see God, when I need to see God, we need to see God. But hiddenness is where Genesis ends and where Exodus begins. Exodus, uh, you probably learned this in your class this morning, where Genesis ends and you begin with the book of Exodus, the very first word is the word and. It means that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. The sons of Israel have gone to Egypt at the end of Genesis because of a famine in the land in the time of Joseph, time of Jacob. And the land where they're living, the promised land, has become a place that that there's not enough food and they're having to go to Egypt. They find the food there. They find Joseph there. And it's a miracle of all miracles. And they end up inviting the entire family. And all of them are settling down and beginning to build a life in Egypt. And what Exodus tells us is that all of these sons of Israel, there are 70 people in total. These are the people of God. And they begin to build a life in Egypt. And it's right here that there's a little hint in the text that something special is happening. 
We don't really get it in the English, but one of the commentators says that the translation of verse 5, of Exodus 1 verse 5, is all those who came forth from the hip of Jacob were 70. All those who came forth from the hip of Jacob were 70. The hip. It's a phrase that reminds us of what happened back in Genesis chapter 32 at a place called Peniel, where the hip of Jacob, as he's wrestling with this stranger that turns out to be God, is, is touched, and he puts that hip out of socket, and Jacob walks the rest of his life with a limp. This is also the place where Jacob's name is changed, which means new beginning, And in this particular case, blessing. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He's blessed by God. The promises are going to run through him. And these are the people through whom the blessing of God throughout the whole earth will come. But they're not in the promised land. They're in Egypt. And we read at the beginning of Exodus that these people that that, that represent God and through whom the promise to bless everyone in the entire world is going to come are flourishing in the land. In fact, the language is flourishing and multiplying. They're flourishing and multiplying as the people of God in this land, but a time comes in their history where nothing, none of that, that history with, with Joseph matters. But what does matter is their size. This new Pharaoh, now that this old Pharaohs, the, the line of Pharaohs have passed, This new Pharaoh that is now king of Egypt is threatened by this dynamic and lively and gigantic people group that are living within the borders of his kingdom, but they do not have an Egyptian identity. And this is cause for fear inside of him. And so he decides that the way that I'm going to handle this problem of these people that could rise up and take us over is to enslave them. And he doesn't just give them jobs that they don't want to do. He makes their life austere and severe and painful in their suffering that's involved and there are no days off and there are these large quotas and it's hard labor and he wants to break their bodies down and so in verse 14 literally in the hebrew there's so much redundancy in this text in order for us to get the idea they made bitter their lives with heavy servitude involving mortar and bricks and with all kinds of servitude in the fields and all their servitude with which they served them with severity. They're living a severe life. They're living on the edge. And for a lot of us, we might have lived on the edge for a couple of weeks. We may have lived on the edge for a year. But now we're talking about people who are going to live on the edge for without end in sight for generations but the people of Israel are so large that there's not enough jobs to go around and so a plan is hatched to kill uh, infanticide is hatched and put into play and there are these two Hebrew midwives who are enlisted to put to death all of the the male infants but they won't do it because we are told that they fear God They fear God, and they're not going to do it. What's really interesting is that there's been this great debate over lots and lots of decades, maybe even centuries, as to who this Pharaoh really is. He's not named. 
but we know the two names of the midwives. Pharaoh believes their explanation when they say, you know, the Hebrew women are just tough. And when it comes to giving babies, we don't have time to get there. And so Pharaoh believes their explanation, but he's not going to be finished with just the explanation of these midwives, that they're just too vigorous in the delivering of babies, that they can't get there in time to kill them. So instead of depending on the midwives, he enlists the citizenry of his nation to toss all the male babies into the Nile River. And it's during this time that, that Moses is born. Mother hides him. Finally, the time comes when she can hide him no longer. And she puts him in a waterproof basket that in the Hebrews ark and, and waterproofs it and sets him along the reeds along the bank of the Nile. But he's an infant, an infant's cry. And Pharaoh's daughter has come down to the river with all of her girls and she finds him, she has compassion on him. It's so ironic that the daughter of the man who is trying to end the life of all the male babies is the very one who rescues Moses. Well, Moses also has a big sister by the name of Miriam. She's keeping watch over her little brother. And when the daughter of Pharaoh picks him up, she runs over and says, Hey, I know somebody that can nurse him if you need me to find I mean, this is so obvious that this girl must be connected to this baby, right? But Moses is returned to his mother who raises him up until he's probably around four years of age. And the princess names him Moses, which is an Egyptian name. You, you hear it in the names of other pharaohs. Amos, Tutmos. This one is going to be called Moses. And he grows up as the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh with all the privileges, all those advantages of that status. And now when he's become this grown man, he gets up, decides he wants to watch over his people in all of their hard labor. And he goes down and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And when nobody's looking, Moses is looking one way, he looks the other way. And when he's sure that the coast is clear, he kills that Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Thinking that no one has seen it. That it's safe. Well, the next day he goes out, he sees two Hebrews fussing with one another. He tries to stop it. And one of his own people, a Hebrew, turns to him and says to Moses, Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Well, Moses becomes immediately scared. He's scared to death that Pharaoh's going to find out. And Pharaoh finds out Pharaoh's going to try to kill him. And so he's got to get out of Dodge. And he runs off to, to the land of Midian, to that wilderness. And the rescuer of the people of Israel now on the land. Sort of makes you wonder about the relationship between Pharaoh and Moses. You know, for those of us in my generation and older who have grown up with the Ten Commandments, everybody wants a son like Moses. Pharaoh loves Moses. But in my experience, if you have power and you have means and you have affluence, and you have authority, and you run things, and your grandson messes up, you find a way out for him, you don't try to kill him. Maybe the relationship between Pharaoh and Moses, who is a Hebrew, the people he is trying to kill, has not taken place the way that we think it has. But one of the things that stands out 
is that there is no mention of God in these two chapters where things are going from bad to worse, except that the midwives feared God and that God blessed them with family. There's a strange silence. Four centuries of silence from God. Instead, what we read, only of, we read only of human decisions and of their completely normal results. And so we begin to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on here with God? Except, let's go back to the very first word of Exodus, which is the word and. It's a continuation from Genesis. And it's there in Genesis, in a conversation with Abraham, that in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13, the Lord says to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the land, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. What that verse in Genesis tells us is that there's, it's, it's a clue as to what's happening in Exodus, that there is something bigger that's going on that meets the eye. And so maybe it's really important because we all experience the hiddenness of God sometimes. Some of us a lot of the time. What does it mean? How do we understand the hiddenness of God in the world that we live in? Well, number one, God, God's hiddenness helps us to see the real issues that are taking place in life. For these particular people at the beginning of Exodus, the sons of Israel, Things have gotten worse and worse and worse. Pharaoh takes the sons of Israel and he turns them into slaves. And, and, and not just slaves, but slaves that he is trying to, to crush into the dust. And when that doesn't work, he adds to it infanticide. He tries to kill the male infant by the midwives. Which means basically that he's killing all of the future warriors because his fear is they're going to rise up and they're going to take our land or they're going to move on and we're not going to have our labor. But he's going to kill all of the warriors that could possibly go to war with him. Leaving just the ladies, they will marry Egyptians. And they will live in Egyptian households. And they will give birth to children with Egyptian blood in them. And they are going to be assimilated into the Egyptian nation. Pharaoh tries to kill the male infants by making it a national degree. The one Hebrew who can do anything about it messes up. Messes up royally. I mean, he murders someone and has to flee for his life into the land of Midian. And the idea, the dream of ever getting his people out of that slavery, at least for a while, is going to be dead in the heart and the soul of Moses. The irony is that Egypt is what at one time had helped to sustain their life during the famine in those latter chapters of, of Genesis. And Jacob says it himself. He's now become you know, this great leader, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he says to his brothers when they've come, and now they know that it's their brother Joseph that they're talking to, he says all of these cruel horrific, horrible things that you did to me. You may have meant them for evil, 
but they got me to this place in order for our family to be sustained. And when the people settled into the land, they made it their home. They made it their home rather than the promised land where they were supposed to live. And they're there four centuries outside of the promised land. They're building a life, raising their families. What's good for Egypt is good for the people of God. And somehow, in the middle of all of this, God is moved somewhere off the page. I mean, it's an easy thing to do, right? Things are going great, things are going well, things are wonderful, and God is present, but we don't think about Him because we don't need Him. But out of sight leads to out of mind. And then all of a sudden, Egypt raises itself up and is a threat and a danger. And in the middle of this, there's hardly a mention of God. Not a single word from God. In four centuries, silence. One of the better uh, theologies in Exodus, written by a guy by the name of uh, Donald Galwin. And he says that this silence in the first two chapters is completely intentional because when you see how vocal God is, is present in the rest of the book, beginning with chapter 3, and when you consider the books of Torah, Genesis and, and the rest of Torah and even the rest of the Old Testament, on the backside of Exodus, you see a God who has no problem answering and talking and communicating to his people. And he gives a couple of examples. He says, you know, an angel of the Lord could have instructed the midwives, Shipper and Pua, as this angel appeared to Hagar in all of her distress in the wilderness. Remember that story. Or we could have had an enunciation of Moses, like you find in Judges chapter 13 when it comes to the birth of Samson. Or even Samuel. Or God could have instructed Moses' mother and sister in a dream like he did when he instructed Jacob how to increase his flocks in Genesis chapter 31. We know that God can speak. We know that God can reveal himself. Now those who were a part of the Insight Seminar this past January will remember that, that Kevin Youngblood reminded us that, that at the heart of the book of Exodus is a question. And the question finds its form in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 7. And the question is this. Is the Lord among us or not? Israel needs someone to free them. He need, they need someone to liberate them from the severe life. And the trajectory of this book is enslavement and endangerment of life to the worship of God. The people need, though, an exodus, and they need a Savior to lead them through it, and so they begin to cry out to God. And in verse 23, the Israelites groan in their slavery. They cry out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God hears. But what they're asking is, where is God? Where's the confidence that comes from His Word? Where's, where's the power that comes because of His love? God seems to be absent in our blackest nights and our darkest days. But that hiddenness is meant to trigger something in us. God's hiddenness teaches us to seek Him earnestly. 
The psalmist is always saying, God, where are you? Stop hiding. Come to me. Let me see you. But isn't it always the case that we look back on our lives and recognize that God was doing something all along? When you look back at Exodus chapter 1 and 2, from our vantage point and from our history, it becomes evident that God was working behind the scenes. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the planet, but he doesn't look competent. Pharaoh's fearful of the Hebrew population, and so he decides he's going to enslave them and and, and tire them out and make them weary and beat them down and wear them out, only to find them multiplying and being fruitful. He tries to kill the male infants, but he's thwarted by two midwives who fear him. He tries to enlist the entire Egyptian population to throw the male infants into the Nile River, But by that very decree and that very command and that very act, he is driving Moses into the safest haven of all, the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And on top of that, all of the heroic figures in Exodus 1 and 2 are female. The two midwives and Moses' mother and his sister and even Pharaoh's daughter who pulls him out of the danger and pulls him in. The, The point is this. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. That God's hiddenness does not mean absence. And that's a lesson we must learn to live with in in times of trouble. The the Apostle John says that God, in in, in 1 John chapters 3 and 4, he says that God is love. If we believe that, and it's true, and it is, It means that God is always working love into whatever is happening in the world, whether we see it or not. And that's why God's hiddenness is a reason to love Him. Is that God's work in this world and and in our personal individual life and world is not contingent on us being able to see it or even understand it. His love and His action in our life are not dependent on us recognizing it. You know, you do stuff for your kids all the time, don't you? And how many times do they say thank you? Yeah, at least one does, I guess. But you have to learn how to say thank you. And you learn how to say thank you and to say thank you when you see it. That little granddaughter... When she sees me, she knows that here is a big bundle of blessing that's coming her way. And we're teaching her to say thank you for the things that she sees. But in our life, we're not always going to be able to see all the ways that God works in our lives. And yet, we believe that He works. Because there was another time in which God was hidden. 400 years or so after the time of Malachi speaks his last word of prophecy, the people of God are being ruled once again by a foreigner to their people group. They're not in a foreign land ruled by a foreign authority, but there's a foreign authority in their land that's ruling them. And after four centuries, a child is born. A child is born, although another king fearful of losing his power and his authority and his place has ordered all the male infants killed. 
And like Moses before him, he spent 40 years in the wilderness before becoming the God-directed liberator of his people. This one goes for 40 days into the wilderness and comes out to lead his people in an exodus from slavery to sin. And over there in Luke chapter 9, there's that transfiguration. And this time, it's not the glory of God that is showing up in a bush. It's causing Moses to fall down. This time, it's the glory of God in the Son of God. It's like lightning has become frozen in this person. And Moses just happens to be there, along with Elijah. And what we read in Luke chapter 9, in the original language, is that he's not far from heading to Jerusalem. And they are there to talk to him about his exodus. Now we translate it as departure, but it's his exodus. He's about to lead people out of his exodus, which is their enslavement to sin. And, and, and that is one of the reasons why, even though God may be hidden and we don't see Him as clearly as we would like. And there are those dark nights of the soul. And there are those times when worship seems to be dry. We know that He exists. And we see in the past that he, just because He was hidden and unseen by human eyes, it did not mean that the reality of His presence was not true. So we love Him. And we worship Him. As Peter would say later in life, you love Him. You have not seen him, but you love him because he's the savior of your soul. And maybe that's not uh, an experience you've had just yet. We're going to have some shepherds down here at the front who would love to talk to you about how you can end all of that, 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 that sense of guilt and conscience that's gone awry in order to find yourself being adopted by the king of the universe. Becoming his only child, not his only child, his, his beautiful child. And, and not only that, it's an opportunity. Maybe you're struggling with something in your life where God's not been all of that evident and you're struggling. The psalmist struggled. There's nothing wrong with struggling as long as it mean, means that you've burned your bridges to every other answer. And it's only God. And you're striving after God and earnestly seeking Him. If that describes you this morning and you need the prayers of the church, what we're going to ask you to do is to come down while we're singing this song and talk to these shepherds about how our church can minister to you. Let's stand and let's praise the God who is hidden and not hidden, but always saves and always blesses. Let's stand and sing. Before the throne 